Hey everyone, we've got big news. We're doing our first live show in just a few weeks, Monday, November 19th, 2018 at The Resident in downtown LA. It's at 8 p.m. and you can get tickets at residentdtla.com. It's our first live show. Leslie's going to be out here in Los Angeles for only the second time. You know, the only other time was my wedding. So that's how impactful and serious this live show is. You know, uh, uh, you, you better be there or you're going to regret not hearing these hot takes in person. Yes. Uh, in fact, we're not even sure if we're going to be recording this. Okay. This will be yeah. exclusive to the audience there. We're yeah. going to have a lot of cool stuff too. We're going to have t-shirts, a mm -hmm. zine, merch, all sorts of good stuff for the Struggle Session listeners. But only if you're there live buy your tickets now this show will sell out yeah this show's definitely gonna sell out that we can guarantee already so you know it's not a huge venue yeah so uh come see the show It'll, it's gonna be a lot of fun it's, it's, seriously it should be a great time yeah. so come see it hang out grab a beer smoke a joint get your tickets now get the tickets now though you have to get them now Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie III, and yes, we are doing another all-black episode. Um, JDB and Jack are currently um, writing letters of apology to me for all the microaggressions that they've done to me for the first hundred episodes of the show. Um, they're, they're, so they're not allowed on this episode at all. They're, uh, they'll have to read the letters in public um, before they'll be allowed back on the show. So look forward to that content coming up. But today I have my black super team back with me again. Uh, Trevor from Champagne Sharks. Hey, what's going on? How you feeling? I'm doing good and good. And uh, um, Brianna Joy Gray, uh, now of The Intercept. Hi, all. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Now that you are all um, big and famous and successful, and you're still coming on my little podcast, I really appreciate it. <laughs> you you know how absurd that is. First of all, as uh, apropos what we're about to be talking about, since according to some segments of the internet, there are only like two black leftists out there, I can't be alienating the other one. <laughs> we got to stick together. Yes, we do. All two, all two of us. <laughs> If you haven't, go back and listen to our first episode. It was a debate episode where we talked about Black Panther. I, I and you know we had a poll. You know, uh, uh, Trevor and I were on one side where we didn't really like the film. Uh, Bree uh, was a lot more positive about the film. We had a debate, and I think we put it up to the vote for the fans, and I think we won like seven hundred eighty-seven thousand votes. <laughs> to like one for you <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure that's how the poll numbers uh, uh bared out that sounds like one of them trump polls <laughs> is, it, is, is that sarah huckabee sanders i hear on the other end of this uh, recording <laughs> <laughs> but yes some people say brie cleaned our clocks uh, i don't agree you should go back and listen to it um for yourself but today we're talking about a movie that we're actually all in agreement with, I think. I think we all really enjoyed this movie. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the ver uh, various reasons why and the culture surrounding the movie and why 
this movie it took why it took me like two months to see it because it was in such limited release even though it's such a really good movie as good as any other film that gets wide release and gets shoved in you know four thousand screens every weekend and that's of course um boots riley's sorry to bother you his uh surrealist stoner comedy slash uh, organize, political organizing slash sci-fi horror film. There's a lot going on. Um, if you haven't seen the film yet, I think you can still listen to this podcast. We are going to do spoilers, but I don't think there's anything really in the film. The film is not really centered around the surprise uh, of it. There is a kind of a big surprise, but it's not really like the main point of the film. It's much more about the feeling and the mood and the humor than it is about any twist or turns. And and it has a really good central message that stays consistent throughout the film. So you're not really going to be surprised by say how it ends up. So if you haven't watched it yet, if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, I think you'll still be good. Uh, So first I want to start off just by asking um, um, both of you, how did you... How did you like the film overall? Um, I enjoyed it a great deal. And, you know, I've said this before, and I don't mean to minimize the creativity of the film or how visually compelling the film was or how fun the characters were or how great the concept was. But in some ways, the film didn't even need to bring all that for me. The very fact that we had a film where the central um, kind of dramatic arc, the way that the dramatic tension is resolved is not through a feat of individual heroism, but through collective action. And that that collective action is normalized in the course of the film, not only as something that's a tool of the people, but as a tool for people of color, predominantly black people in this film, was revolutionary in and of itself. And hearing people talk about the film afterward um, and start to come to understand how to talk in class terms was as heartening as it was to see how much people struggled to talk about the movie in class terms was disheartening. But I think it was just such an important step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I liked the movie a lot. It was um, a lot to digest and I wanted to see it a second time. And I didn't, I don't know if either of you had a chance to, but um, I really wish I had a chance to see it a second time. Did either of you get a chance to uh, rewatch it? No, unfortunately not. Like it, it. I literally could not see the film because it wasn't playing in anywhere near where I could afford to go until uh, I think uh, two weeks ago, where they did the limited re-release, which is just annoyed me to all hell. Like it shouldn't be that hard to see a film that looks that good. That movie. It just on a basic level, it looks like a film. So many films do not look like films. That is a professionally made, real-ass movie. And the fact that it was so hard to see it just boggles um, my I guess it doesn't surprise me. And we talk a lot about how the industry works. And, of course, uh, it was it unfortunately was tagged as a black movie and at and more even more than that a black movie that was you know had a kind of a radical message which i actually don't think is really fair to the film and and we can talk about it later but unfortunately i, I couldn't see it twice i could barely see it once yeah i only saw it the once although i can't blame limited release because i was in new york <laughs> yeah you had no excuses <laughs> 
Yeah, like uh, I wanted to see it twice, but first I didn't have the time, and then the second thing was I had some other movies I was curious about seeing, like uh, Crazy Rich Asians and Searching, and the new Mission Impossible, which I don't know really why I want to see that, but I kind of do. I kind of want to see Henry Cavill's mustache just to see what um, they ruined the whole Justice League visuals for. <laughs> but, you know what? It, yeah. it, it turns out it was actually worth it, possibly, because that movie is really, really good. That's, the, that, that's what I heard. I heard that. And I like Black Brad Bird in general. Even though he gives some s- disturbing signs of having bad politics, uh, I can't lie. Craft-wise, he does. And that is Brad Bird, right? That does a Mission Impossible movie? So. I know. It's Christopher McQuarrie. Oh, okay. Brad Bird did Ghost Protocol, but the last two have been uh, Chris. Uh, I think the last maybe three have been Christopher McQuarrie. Oh my he God, probably has bad politics, too. It's pretty oh. safe to assume he's a Hollywood director. Uh, yeah. Guys, you didn't tell me I had to bring my protractor and suspenders to this podcast. Oh, excuse. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this yeah. is she's, she's already, <laughs> already starting. We're coming together in unity. In unity. And you're already dissing us. Right. What what nerd part has happened yet? It's like Mission Impossible. It's like a super blockbuster Tom like Cruise. Ner- First of all, nerd n- being a nerd... There's like the difference between being a geek and a nerd, right? It isn't being a nerd having like a detailed, um, somewhat spectrumy, like focus, like expertise on like a very narrow field. Oh so no, I think this is very. Nerd, this is a very broad. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, we can get nerdy, but I think so far it's been very broad. It's just been like very basic. Yeah, uh, I, I've never done anything as nerdy <laughs> as go to Harvard. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, me, nerds like uh, me and. Barack Obama. <laughs> he is a nerd. He's yeah, a yeah, damn yeah. nerd. <laughs> no, no, no. The episode that Leslie did with uh, me last night of Champion Sharks, that is true nerd. Like, you know, I will cop to it when it's done. That is uh, some heavy nerding out. But I feel like uh, we're being unfairly maligned on this conversation so Already, far. already. <laughs> but please, please, T, continue. Please continue. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. I think I think uh, I think we're done because I, I don't want to talk about Mission Impossible. We have to stay focused. So yes, yeah, stay focused. I'm sorry to bother you. So if you haven't seen the film, all right, um, it's hard. It's really hard to describe the plot uh, because the, it goes in a lot of directions. I feel like the like it's it's almost like an it gave me the feeling of like watching like Office Space or like what's that um, Dave Chappelle movie about getting high. Uh, uh, half baked is it? Half baked, half mm-hmm. baked. That's it. Kind of gave me that feel where it kind of just goes. It cut. It just kind of lang- lingers for a while and then goes off in all these weird tangents. But basically, um, you have this guy named Cash who is broke, broke as a joke. Just a black guy living in his uncle's garage. Um, which doesn't have a functioning door and he's broke and he's looking to make money. And he's with his girlfriend, uh, Detroit, who is this super cool uh, artist with a really interesting secret that you see later in the, in the film. And he's just trying to come up and make some ends meet. So he gets a job telemarketing, which I'm sure a lot of struggling people have done. I've done it uh, 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 myself a couple of times. And he um, when he gets in there, he, you know, he immediately meets like um, the crappy mill manager who's just trying to, you know, with all that fake. Oh, bro. Oh, homie. Oh, 
yeah, yeah, yeah stuff that every uh, mill manager uh, speaks in and basically tries to tell them that all you got to do to succeed here is stick to the script. And if you stick to the script and you make the sales, you'll go get to go to the second level. You'll get to get in the elevator and go to the top floor where they have the power callers. And those are the big bucks. Those are the rainmakers. Those are the money makers. And but cash kind of struggles initially until uh, Danny Glover, uh, who, who plays plays a older telemarketer tells him that the secret is using your white voice on the phone. And I thought it was a very interesting how Boots described the white voice because he said it's not the voice that white people um, actually have. It's the voice that white people think they have or want to have. It's the voice where you don't have a care in the world. Like you don't care about making the sale. You don't care about getting this customer. You can do this or you can go to golf. It's all the same to you. And I, and that is the secret to how Cash um, makes his come up. And I thought that was really interesting. And unfortunately, well, I guess he does do a good job. But David Cross, um, who has a uh, degenerative case of uh, brain worm disease, if you looked at his Twitter feed um, recently, he plays the white voice of uh, Cash, which is a, which is actually uh, he does a pretty good job. He gets that white voice and it takes him to the next level where he is a power caller. And of course, he discovers that, you know, uh, not all that glistens is gold that, you know, he, while in, before he was selling psychopleas, now he's selling um, arms and weapons and human beings to this um especially and their top client is this uh like amazon type company run by uh, a guy played by army hammer who is basically supposed to be like uh, jeff bezos but a lot more handsome and fun he gets invited to this party um where he is invited by the jeff uh, army hammer's character um to snort some cocaine which uh, might not be cocaine, and he discovers this weird secret about what the uh, worry-free company is doing to its workers because worry-free ha has basically like camp Facebook campuses where all the workers live. They have advertisements through the film where they say like, hey, if you're tired of the capitalistic grind, why don't you come to worry free? You're guaranteed a job for life. You're guaranteed health care for life. You're guaranteed food for life. You just work for us and we'll take care of you. But it turns out that in order to make that profitable, more profitable, um, worry free is turning people into horses like giant mutant horses that can lift boxes faster and uh, ship those orders out a little bit faster. And so that turns cash against uh, worry-free in the call center and he joins a fight to unionize the uh, call center at his at his work. I, it's very it's a very bizarre film. There's like it it goes in all these weird tangents, but the heart of it is is as Bree said, like this union this organization effort where um, Stephen Yoon's character wants to unionize the call center, and initially Cash supports it, but once he gets you know the call up, he kind of abandons. It, but by the end of the film, he's seen some, you know, fucked up stuff that the rich people do. So he comes back down and helps. Uh, he busts the strike busters and helps, you know, they I guess they 
eventually get better pay and more benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And so the film kind of ends there with the efforts uh, being successful. So really the heart of the film is like just organizing. That's kind of the the most, you know, prevalent message of it that you should work together, you know, to demand more from your uh, to demand more of the benefits from your labor, from your uh, by unionizing. Yeah. One thing I found interesting about it was this kind of idea that nobody cared about the horse problem once it came out. Like, oh, yeah. That I thought was, there were a lot of things in the movie that if I had to make one complaint, there were some things where I thought, oh, this would be a great concept to flesh out. And the movie just had a lot of things to say. And I think, like, I think there were like three or four movies in there. Yeah, it's a lot of like concepts that Boots used in it. Um, that that, that kind of happens because this is his first, you know, film. He's writing, he throws a lot of ideas in there. But it felt to me almost like a Philip K. Dick thing. Um, he's a sci-fi writer, but every book he, he wrote like tons and tons of novels. But every novel he would just throw out, you know, these sci-fi ideas that you know other writers would make an entire book about. But he would just have them on a page or two, and like that's it. Every time he created a new book, he would create a new world, and there'd be all these weird stuff. And that's kind of what this film reminded me of, like a very Philip K. Disc Dick. A way of saying, you know what, I got all these ideas, I can throw them all out there and I'll have more later. I don't need to, you know, flesh them out or draw this out. I can just, you know, put them in there and uh, and leave it uh, for uh, just leave it in the background. It, it felt very confident to me from Boots that he was just like, I can throw, you know, tons and tons of ideas that other people make full movies out of and just be uh, done with them and use them in the background. Yeah, I got I got a lot from those. I, I did. I, I think I agree that I didn't feel like any of those those notions were squandered. I, ha- I haven't seen the movie more than once, but I do feel like it's the kind of movie that would improve upon subsequent viewings because you are able to sit more with those moments instead of being kind of overwhelmed by the pretty um, outrageous, um, you know, plot plot twists and in in kind of high. Uh, high concepts that are introduced yeah like the worry free thing like it, it almost seems like like boots is almost like making a parody of like a socialist work uh utopia right like it feel like all right you don't like this is what all the things socialism promise you but it's owned by amazon and like all the all the little clips that they show from the worry see where all the workers are like living in the cots and, and stuff like that it's very very like funny yet disturbing oh, like I, I didn't interpret that as a commentary on socialism, but on capitalism. No, I didn't think it was a commentary on socialism, but it was kind. It was kind of like this is I, if, what if, 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 this if, is if, what like UBI when you know when uh, like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg say they want to do UBI. This is what is going to happen. This is what they mean by that. If I understand like what you're talking about, I I think it's probably what what. Uh, tell me if this overlaps with what you're saying, that how capitalism can kind of co-opt the uh, optics of socialism. Because this is a re- very, you know, character-based film. This is a really hyper-focus on our uh, lead character, Cassius Green, played wonderfully, I think, by Lakeith Stanfield, who seems to be in every weird black thing that's come out in the past 
um, five years, including like the. I just realized back uh, that he was uh, the guy with the god mask in uh, the Purge Anarchy. He's the guy in the second Purge. I, oh, I, 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 I was just looking that. back at, and then oh. realized it. Like that that was Lakeith Stanfield. So he's he's been haunting us for a, a while now, and this is kind of his come up. I I really think he did like a really good job carrying the movie especially for a character that's so defined by his passivity right like he he's you know his main thing is that he really doesn't he kind of goes with the flow and doesn't really buck the system until towards the end and it's kind of hard to make that engaging as a character but he manages to do it just because he's so naturally you know handsome and charming and interesting uh to look at that he and his acting is very you know natural like i felt like a lot of the conversations he has with his friends like i it felt like real people to me like real like things that people would talk about even in this really you know sci-fi absurdist universe i felt like the uh cash is someone i could you know know or have worked with or seen around um the only thing i have to say about like keith stanfield's acting and in, in in presence in the movie was that i got the strong impression after watching a bunch of boots riley interviews that he did the um woody allen thing and just hired versions of himself <laughs> <laughs> yes like he's kind of cast himself in the movie because I, I i'm not that familiar I, before this i wasn't that familiar with boots riley's like personal persona and watching him was like that kind of scattered um a little bit uh kind of fl- fl- flaky seeming substantive but sp- kind of spaced out uh kind of demeanor is I, I just think Lakeith Stanfield, even when he's not acting, <laughs> it was a really good match. <laughs> so Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson, I really um, enjoyed her character as well. She's kind of, she's an artist um, and secret revolutionary too. Like she's, uh, throughout the film, it's kind of hinted that she's running this almost paramilitary like group of black women who uh go around um defacing uh corporate property and stuff i thought her character was really cool and interesting and different from the film like one the thing i liked the most about it is that they break up for like she leaves him for like a good reason and you're like you don't feel bad about her doing it, and you kind of also under, kind of understand where he's coming from because he's finally making money, he's finally coming up, but she really can't, you know, get down with him like crossing the picket line, and like it's a real thing. That's a real thing. I really like that they latched on to something that like people might deal with in real life as opposed to like all the fake reasons that people break up and then make up in all these romantic comedies. I also like she kind of hooked up with Steven Yuna's uh, characters a little bit, but uh, it was fair because they were on a break and then they, you know, end up kind of getting back together be- once Cash, you know, gets his shit together and, you know, realizes what's really important. I really liked um, that uh, romantic arc. I couldn't, I couldn't tell if, the side relationship or the cheating with um, Stephen Yoon's character and Detroit was something that was kind of a throwaway that didn't need to be there or if it was something that was necessary and I just didn't get what it was trying to say. Because I, I kind of wondered what the point of it was. And I feel like this movie was too meticulously um, crafted 
for it to just be there for the sake of melodrama entertainment. And I was trying to figure out what was meant. I don't know if it was meant to show that um, solidarity goes above, you know, petty concerns like that, you know, that, that he could hook up with his girlfriend and they can still kind of push past ex, that. Well, technically ex-girlfriend. Yeah, ex, yeah there's no cheating. You said cheating, and I was wanted to follow up to see to ask what that was because I don't recall anybody cheating on anybody in this movie. Oh no, yeah, they were definitely broken up at the end. So I have a grand theory that kind of addresses this. It's because, like, so Boots has said that like every character in this film is kind of a representation of him, parts of his personality. So Cash, of course, is just you know regular Boots, just the just the dude you know, the dude you hang out with, dude you kick it with, you know. And Detroit is the artist. side of boots the the uh one who wants to you know create all these big things and has all this passion that he you know uh suffers for and gives for and devotes his life to and steven yoon his character was and squeeze <laughs> I don't know, oh i knew his name sorry why, why is his name squeeze so steven yoon's character uh squeeze how did i not catch that either that's terrible yeah represents the activist part of boots and so, like, all of these characters are kind of parts of Boots' personality, like, in relationships with each other, fighting with each other, loving each other, breaking up with each other. And I think, ultimately, that scene between uh, uh, Squeeze and Detroit was uh, Boots saying, you know what, I, 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 under- I don't want to, I can't just be, like, you know, Act, uh, activist all the time like I, I have to have something more uh to me because squeeze actually uh part of squeeze's character he's a guy he actually he's trying he's the guy trying to unionize the call center and actually says oh i go from town to town doing this organization stuff mm-hmm. uh, organizing uh different places he's not a guy who's rooted uh, in the same way that Cash is in the neighborhood, in the in with his family, in his home, and so I think you know, uh, uh, Detroit's flirtation with Squeeze is kind of like, you know, Boots kind of flirting with you know, just focusing entirely on activism, throwing himself entirely to it. But then you know, at the end, she in uh, Detroit, the artistic side ends up back with Cash because he kind of she kind of needs to be more who has been more rag- radicalized by the end by realizing that you know kind of he has to be more grounded that because she says at the beginning of the film that I'm with Cash, you know, because he's real. Like that's what she tells Squeeze, because Squeeze immediately tries to kind of hook up with uh, Detroit and ask him what the relationship is about, and like uh, the artist kind of likes that real groundedness of him, that you know, that kind of nonchalant uh, way that he has. With the end, you know, I think that's what the scene was about ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I, I frankly thought the movie would have been stronger if she hadn't gone back to. Um, caches because there is this way in which and and boots has addressed this in interviews and he's he says this was unintentional and i i believe that and it's a little bit of a cop-out but it is what it is um that that for her to go back with cash once cash kind of like gets it together politically and stops being a strike breaker suggests that her relationship with him is a she's a kind of a sexual prize for doing the right thing and being ethical. Um, Because remember, they break up as Cash is kind of in the peak of his 
um, participation in this um, exploitative corporate um, job. While all of his friends are outside striking, he's up there raking in the money and doing so at the expense of, you know, all the people who are going to be bombed by the bombs that he's selling and all of these yeah. kind of things that he's, he's working with. So, you know, she ends up getting back to, with him after they kind of like spark the revolution and they overturn the company and all that jazz. So, you know, I thought that narratively it would have been stronger if they were able to be friends, have a relationship, but whether or not she stayed with Squeeze, she didn't go back to cash. And frankly, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I appreciated the kind of novelty of being able to like have a character like Squeeze, given the kind of underrepresentation of Asian men in cinema and like the lack of the la- la- the lack of opportunities for them to present as like masculine sexual roles as well. You know, they didn't let Aaliyah kiss Jet Li and Romeo Must Die. I felt like this was retribution. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look, look, the Blasian love does happen in the film, but it, it, it doesn't feel like force or anything because Stephen Yu's a incredibly handsome guy. Like, yeah, he was dope, and his character was dope. It was believable, yeah, his character you would want to be with him. Like, he's the he was the only kind of like morally uncompromised male figure in this movie. Like, he yeah. came in to do the right thing. He did the right thing. He left. So, yeah, like, so is it that you didn't you want her to stay with Steven Yoon, or you more just didn't want her to go back to cash? Or it's, it's the latter, more than I didn't got want you. her to go back to cash. Got you. So I, I I feel that like, but as I said, you know, Steven Yoon's character is unrooted, unmoored, and that's the thing she mo- likes most about Cash. So and actually, Boot says we don't really know if like because they don't like get engaged or anything at the end of the film. Like we just know they're back together for the time, and then something happens at the very very end, which suggests that maybe they aren't going to be. Uh, they they definitely aren't going to live happily ever after at the uh, very end uh, with a really um bizarre twist i won't spoil here you just gotta wait for it uh, i don't want to spoil that part for you but I, I i really did enjoy squeeze's character like overall like he's a, a good uh character he has he has passion he has um a commitment and, and i really like detroit characters characters too like i i feel like she's kind of the same like they were they both were too good to be together they would be in, i feel like they would be very insufferable if they were both together as a couple like they would be the ones who are always so fucking woke always so <laughs> cool like i would get sick of hanging out with them at least cash is like shitty and a stoner to kind of damp down you know how cool detroit is so i feel like if i had to hang out with either of these couples I would much prefer Cash and and Detroit than uh, Cash and Squeeze because they would just be too much. I wasn't as fully convinced of uh, her non shittiness. I do <gasps> think I do think he was shittier, but I do th- I felt like um, Boots was trying to kind of show everyone had a kind of a shitty side, and I mean, because for example, she um, criticizes. Uh, cash about certain things, right? Including how she hates when he does the white voice. But then when she's doing her art, she's doing her own version of the, of the and it's white British. voice, but, but, but by making by making it British. But she yeah. kind of, I feel like she kind of didn't see it because she's doing it in the context of art. And somehow she made some kind of um, separation in her head or there was a certain lack of self-awareness that I felt like he was 
kind of trying to critique. I feel like everybody had a good side and a bad side. He was kind of trying to show how a lot of woke artists kind of um, compromise themselves in ways that they're able to rationalize that they won't do in an office. Like, you know, they might be like, oh, you know, for my office job, I just check out and do the bare minimum. I'm not a suit. But then they'll sell out in a lot of little ways when it's time to do um, their art. And, you know, kind of like how she made a spectacle of herself being pelted by uh, all those middle-class white people in performing of her art. And were they really uh, performing her art? Was she offering them, like, you know... Like, there's something pornographic about it for her to be, like, naked and being pelted by fluids by these voyeurs. It was something, like, kind of pornographic, like, you know, something kind of psychosexual about it. But because she's giving the speech that none of them are listening to, they're there for the spectacle. And there's a sexual aspect to the spectacle. <coughs> and well, is she selling sex or is she selling art? And is she, or is she lying to herself about what she's selling by um, selling the spectacle with a speech attached? I didn't see, I are didn't they really see, there for the speech? I didn't really see it as selling sex. It's more like, I saw it more as like pain and uh and uh masochism and i thought that that was boot saying oh this is what it's like to be a radical leftist who has to try and make a movie in hollywood like this is the shit i have to put up with this is what i go through this is how i sell out basically i thought that was his critique kind of of himself because he has said that you know uh, detroit is him as an artist and i feel like that was kind of his critique of himself of what he's doing as an artist trying to be a musician a filmmaker in this world ruled by you know rich um capitalists who don't really give a shit about his art and so, so don't what did care he say he was, what he's saying what did he say he was trying to do he said this is what well, he, what is what, it this what he said has said is that art without kind of political purpose is empty and he has been very critical of that. I've interpreted that scene to be a, a demonstration of that emptiness. And I, I, I think, I think the scene was the weakest in the movie. I think it's the sloppiest because it's so open to interpretation. But I personally just juxtapose her art in that scene to her art in her kind of like um, Antifa street art gang. Um, which is very political and which does seem also very purposeful. Um, and I, 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 my biggest problem with that scene was that it was unclear whose perspective we were supposed to take after he set up the conflict between Cash and Detroit. So Cash ultimately confronts her and basically makes some claims that you've just made T that she's kind of sexualizing herself and debasing herself in front of this white audience and asked her, what are you doing? But in the context of the movie, it wasn't clear to me whether I was supposed to agree with him or whether I was supposed to see him as being paternalistic and um, basically mad at her for detaching herself, herself from him and being independent. And that she actually did have an artistic mission that he just wasn't understanding. And he was just being kind of self-centered and narcissistic and not trusting her and her independent artistic judgment. And I think it was a weakness that there were, there were credible criticisms of both figures in that scene. And see, it see, undermined see, That's interesting because I think it's actually a strength that you can um, see it both ways. But I see what you mean. Like, like to me, I kind of like that because uh, I think life is messy like that. Like, I feel like one person's uh, whoring is one person's um, expression. 
and I use whoring in a non-gendered uh, way. <laughs> like, you know, I well, think... Uh, I, I just want to be clear, you know, I took um, Detroit side all the way. Uh, Cash was being a, a, a controlling man, but I guess I just, you know, naturally, you know, want to support black women, especially black artists, and that's why that scene was not controversial for me. But um, please continue. It. Yeah, I didn't think the scene was necessarily... Um, controversial but i did think that there was and the reason why it really pushed me over there was the british voice because there really was no other reason for it mm-hmm. except to kind of show a type of hypocrisy because he she does it and then he makes a face and i felt like um without that i think i would have probably gone further to your um take of it but i felt like it was just too conspicuously thrown in there that um british voice and i've Felt like it was kind of something that encouraged him to just do what he wanted to do because he was just kind of like, um, well, she's criticizing me, but what makes her better than me? And But I do also think that people can be right and wrong. I felt like everybody was right and wrong. Like I do think that he was motivated by what you said too, by a petty type of paternalistic uh, ownership idea that he had some kind of ownership over his sexuality or that you know um that there was a certain type of uh what's the word like prudishness or um patriarchal type uh, puritanical of, yeah puritanical patriarchal like i don't think her being partially wrong or hypocritical necessarily fully vindicated him either you know And also, I'm, now that I think about it, I wonder if maybe the fact that uh, Stephen was kind of... Because even though... So I come Stephen his real name, but his name was actually uh, in the movie Squeeze. Squeeze. Even though they didn't cheat, I mean, there was kind of signs that he was kind of um, testing the boundaries when he knew they were together. Like, the actual... Oh, when they first uh, meet, he's he's trying. He's he's like, oh, "What's up with you and Cash? Why 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 are y'all together? I don't get that." Yeah, yeah, and he's showing up at a workplace and trying. Like, there's no denying wait, that wait, wait, he's, wait. he's not showing up at her workplace. He works there too because he's a union organizer. No, no, no. Her, her side, her side hustle is spinning the sign. Oh yeah, he did show oh, up. Yeah, at no, her I side love that scene. <laughs> yeah, 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 oh, but, see, see, Bree, I see? think you have a little bias <laughs> when it comes to Mister Squeeze. Are you raising the fact that I happen to be dating a Chinese American man? I am not. I would never, you know, disparage. I would never use something unfair against you. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, there may be a something, something a little bit going on. I Maybe will you say see that. A what's going on is that as a black woman who is presented in movies often with black female characters who are expected always to go hard for the black male character and put up with all kinds of stuff and be right or die no matter what he does as he goes through his narrative arc and learns how to be a real man and all that stuff that every single movie is about. Like I appreciated in this movie that she was given an option and it wasn't about the race of the alternative, but the fact that she had an alternative. And I also enjoyed the fact that, you know, I hate the fetishization of interracial relationships and I particularly hate the fetishization of Um, the idea that interracial relationships always involve a white person. So I also do appreciate the fact that they subverted all of our kind of stereotypes about sexual desirability in this movie and not only gave her a choice to pick a partner that was more attuned to her political needs, but that that partner was someone who, as a viewer, you might not necessarily be expecting to be a romantic threat to Cash because he is an Asian man. And I felt like that was... 
like a strong political choice in and of itself for reasons. I, kind of I don't know about you. I ain't, I ain't letting Steven Yoon anywhere near my wife. <laughs> I consider that dude a threat. That dude is too handsome, too charming, too likable. I you know. I, charming as I, I, I'm not. I didn't. I don't watch Walking Dead, so I've never really seen him in anything, and I was not expecting him to be that charming. But he he did the thing. Oh yeah, he was like the best part of the show when the show was good. Like he's he's a, he's a star. I, uh, it's only racism that would hold him that holds him back from <laughs> yeah, being, you yeah. know, a bigger. But let's let's talk about the. I, I want to oh, kind oh, of jump oh, into. I, I just want to finish a quick point. I was saying is that he did kind of get try to mack on her before, even though when they finally consummated it, uh, they were broken up. He did kind of mack on her unapologetically while he knew he was with her. So. I think maybe that was a kind of way of showing that, you know, he's good in this aspect, that he's woke in this thing, but he's still Mr. Steal Your Girl, if he gets a chance. Mr. Steal Your Girl, Star of Union. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I I think everybody had a kind of a bad side. But I will say that Cash, at least for the first part of the movie, does have, is the worst out of the, out of the three as far as uh, his level of wokeness and et cetera. Oh yeah, and it, like it, it's actually funny because like that scene where he gets hit with the soda can and it becomes like an international YouTube sensation. How much of a piece of shit he <laughs> is for it, and everybody's just laughing and making fun of him for being a union buster. I, 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 I being a strike buster. I really, really enjoyed that film. Like how they allowed him to be like become like embarrassed for this reason not for any goofy reason but for a real reason like strike uh like crossing the picket line should be you know seen as extremely shameful and boots masked i think pretty masterfully you know put that in a way that was you know very cinematic and also very modern by bringing in social media and everything and had all the little kids with the halloween mask yeah. of the guy i also <laughs> like how the, the can his I, I also like how the girl who threw the can kind of became a little questionable herself because then she just yeah, like she start, start cashing in and just you know if a fucker strike she became all about uh um, cashing she in became on, on her spoke person for the coca the, for the cola company that she of the can that she threw yeah which, which i think is an example of what you know i think boots did with the other people like he kind of never let anybody just be 100 percent good like everybody which made it kind of human like you don't have to be a perfect irreproachable because in this cancel and call out culture i think there's a lot of that like you know you have to be perfect and beyond reproach uh or you can't be followed and you know all these people at the end of the day whatever you think about their varying degrees of hypocrisy or if they had hypocrisy they could still pull it together and work together to uh do an admirable thing yeah and actually you know one thing like when um cash gets the call up to the major office this is after their for this actually happens immediately after the first um work stoppage that squeeze calls for immediately happened and so but but he gets that call up and he goes to the second floor and then squeeze but squeeze does isn't just like fuck cash he's like hey cash we really still need you man like the fact that you're up there doesn't change that we still want you we still need you we still you're still our our, our guy we really need your help we need your uh, support if you help us 
we will uh, uh, we will it will make us all that much stronger now that you're up there. I really like that. It, it, it wasn't a clean break. Like, and like she did, she says, she, you know, she didn't leave him as soon as he got the promotion. It was like, you know, a while after where she had already quit the job and it, because it was causing problems and it was kind of a progress, like it felt like very human. There weren't just a bunch of like clean breaks that I feel like uh, other movies would make where it would be immediately, Oh, he gets the other job. They break up the union and says screw you and then the union disappears for the rest of the movie until the third act where he decides to help him like no it's kind of a much more natural uh progression for how uh things go um so i kind of want to now talk about this film and race because uh as I, I said before like this movie got you know dinged as a black film it had more than you know uh two uh black characters it had too much melanin in it and so it got you know uh categorized as a black movie but watching this film i did not get that whatsoever this felt like a movie for literally anyone anyone uh could watch it it did and you could and the race of the characters is considered and is important but it's not a film just for black people it's just it's a film for everyone uh yeah i agree in fact it's you, you, they talk about this phenomenon in hollywood where you know they can't cast a black character because then you have to cast this whole black family he's probably gonna have a black girlfriend and yada 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 um in some ways this film is only as black as that phenomenon describes. So you have a black protagonist, okay? He's got a black uncle, Terry Crews, all right. He's got a black, half-black girlfriend, okay? Um, the people at the workplace are mixed race. The guy he happens to sit next to and tells him how to do a white voice is black. His managers are white. Lots of people in the upper management are white. The union organizer is Asian. The, the head of uh, Sorry Free... Um, worry free, worry free uh, sorry. Arm, Army Hammer is is white. So like, there, it's not like there's a bunch of extraneous black characters. Maybe the um, that fellow from Stars, Omar Hardwick, Omari Hardwick. Omari Hardwick. Yeah. Um, okay. He's he's if his character perhaps weren't black, then you know he he's like a character that doesn't have to be black that is black. Let's put it that way. Um, but the elevator woman is white. <laughs> the, you know, yeah, the woman who I, kind of facilitates his transition to the upstairs. You know, like it's 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 not that black a film, and unless you just think that a black person having a couple of black friends and a black girlfriend makes a <laughs> makes a movie fundamentally black. Yeah, I felt a little bit differently about it. Like I thought that it was kind of covertly black, and by that I meant like I thought the horses were the niggers. Like I felt like. People know that there's a preconception about how they should feel about black people, especially in a movie. So if you put like 12 years a slave or something, everybody knows what they're supposed to do and feel and or just have the preconception. Like we know that black people are supposed to be human now, even if unconsciously you dehumanize them in a lot of ways. And I think by creating something that was a stand in for whatever. Like, I feel like capitalism needs this niggers to work, and you have to designate, you have to pin that tail on the donkey and niggerize somebody. I felt like by creating the horses, like, for example, black people watching the movie can watch it. And if it was black people, they would identify. And then the white people, they'd be like, oh, my ancestors fucked this one up. I know the answer to this question now. You know, 
black people are human you know there give me a gold star but by creating this new thing that nobody has any type of preconception or pre-existing relationship to uh psychology which is the horse people you know everyone could probably when i was watching the movie i thought this must have been what it must have been like when europeans first uh were showing black people like you know like some people went and explored then they came back with these things these things and i say things as far as like what they were thinking as far as having to objectify them in order to enslave them like they had to bring back these things in chains and you know say okay these people are gonna do all the work for us now and you can't think of them as humans and have them do that and like the niggerization of something has to be done in order to really exploit something with that like cognitive dissonance and i felt like um the black people are kind of disguised as um, the horses. And um, I mean, that's my personal take on it. And I think it was kind of showing how sometimes you have to, um, like for capitalism to operate at its peak efficiency, you have to throw in like human, like whatever you call. You need, you need slaves, basically. You need yeah, slaves. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really see that because those the horse people don't come until the like the third act, like the end of the film. I'm talking more more as like how the film is perceived on the outside, even just like from the trailers and stuff, how people perce- perceive it. Like it, it, it was weird because it didn't get, it didn't seem to get any woke credit. Uh, none of the normal, none of the twitter all stars were like hyping it up as like oh you must see this like they were like black panther like deray didn't do sorry to bother you cosplay like it didn't get any of credit for or that aspect for blackness but then it also doesn't get international distribution because there's too many black people in it and like i think in both aspects is unfair because is it's is black in the ways that like are cool and matter and it has a strong political message that is meant to uplift all people and especially black people but there's but way too much class in there i think it's the problem yeah, well, it, yeah just, what's so funny is and i said this a little bit in my like opening remarks about this in this podcast but like when i i, I watched a couple i watched a ton of interviews when i was preparing for a review i wrote of sorry to bother you for uh the intercept and what I noticed, especially in these panel interviews with the whole cast, was that certain members of the cast especially seemed to struggle with how to describe the movie and why they liked the movie in terms other than racial terms. But it seemed clear from the kind of the tone of what they were saying, so that what they were trying to articulate was how powerful the class message was, and which I think you can't escape from feeling, which I felt was the most important thing about the film. But what was interesting was that our ability to understand America in class terms is so atrophied that these people who are actually very good at talking about things in racial terms, because we're, we talk about that all day and night, particularly as people of color, you know, they were very, very able to say this was wrong and this happened because he's uh, black, you know, like us oh, in racism, but they just didn't, not all of them, but some of them seem to just really struggle to find the words. And I found that to be really telling, both of how important this movie is and how far we have to go. Yeah, like I, I feel um, you are probably the world's foremost expert 
on this topic now as far as, you know, people not having any language of class when they're analyzing, when they're talking about race. You've written several articles about it. You've gotten in several Twitter debates about it. In fact, we got in kind of one today that I felt kind of tied into some, like why a film like Sorry to Bother You is important because it is, it is you know, a black film, but also a film for everyone and just a, a funny fucking film. It's just a funny film. Like even if you don't pick up any of the messaging, I think you can enjoy this film like any good stoner comedy like i feel like if they maybe had seth rogan in it like this <laughs> this film could have been like a, a wide release hit like that's the only thing that this film is missing compared to any other other uh, other films like that mm-hmm. but but you know it, it really this film is kind of really cool and important i had a lot of hopes for like you know a lot of black people watching it because it explicitly talks about you know class and class solidarity and how you know the getting becoming a power caller is not a solution like all being a power caller does is make you more complicit in the horrors of capitalism it just make it just you now you become the explorer instead of the exploited and even then you're still going to be exploited by someone even higher up so even when cash gets when he goes to the party and they ask him all ask him to rap and he's like uh, i can't rap and the only thing he can come up is saying literally nigger shit nigger shit nigger 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 shit <laughs> and all the and all the white people at the party just go nuts and go crazy and like ah like i feel like that was very um, poignant commentary of what it means to be a black person who's kind of starts climbing the ladder like it points out that that's not a solution and it, it's very telling that you know uh uh cash ends up basically in the same place where he starts to film just with a little bit more knowledge a little bit more comfort the mortgage is paid off he doesn't have to worry about that because he uh embraced uh union solidarity so he, he improved his material condition but he didn't you know stay at his art deco apartment uh fancy art deco apartment he still lived in the garage with his uh with his uncle but his uncle's bills are paid off like mm-hmm. i really liked how it, it it went to that but you know getting to the twitter debate uh today i don't know if we need to drop any names but there was a prominent um black writer who writes about race a lot and writes very good articles about race in prominent papers and i was in down the Twitter thread with them. They, um, I kind of mentioned, I, I saw somebody say something a little bit wild that I kind of disagree with. And I was like, you know, you really can't, you know, deal with racism without, you know, abolishing capitalism. You can't end racism without ending capitalism. And like, the writer like pushed back on me it was like no there'll still be racism at the end capitalism i'm like yeah you will still have to deal with racism after we end capitalism but like you do understand we have to end capitalism if we ever want to end racism and five hours later after this writer has questioned whether i'm really black or not and has used <laughs> the old trope of oh you criticizing capitalism and yet you use a cell phone etc <laughs> and this is somebody who's in, very intelligent when it comes to writing about race very much so. but their understanding of capitalism is that if you have a bank account that means you're a capitalist that's which literally is, what she tweeted to you yeah <laughs> and it's, it's so it like 
just no language and no understanding of how capitalism intersects with race. And it, it was just kind of really shocking to me. It, well, not so shocking because like, I feel like a lot of people are like that. Uh, uh, me and T talked on Champagne Sharks about DeRay's new book and woo. I don't think he really has a firm understanding of anything from the X-Men cartoon <laughs> to capitalism. But, but like, as you said, like we can talk about race so much, but there's not, and there's so many, and there's really, a ton of black movies about race and how bad racism is how terrible racism is and that's nice and that's good and it's fine and actually unlike a lot of people i don't have a problem with like slave movies like i think that's fine that's our history to uh, tell it but i also like boots's movie because he's also talking about like what's behind all of this what's behind all, where does all this oppression you know basically stem from and stems but, from but i also think boots movie is kind of covertly a slave movie as well as other things, but I would totally put it up there with a slave movie. Uh, it has a, a a lot. Well, I don't think it's from the perspective of the horses. That's the only, yeah. that's the only problem with it. Uh, and you don't see as much of the suffering. You actually see Boots is on the rise. I think for a, a lot of pe problems people have with slave movies is just about you know you know things get worse and worse and worse for them. Yeah. Basically, everything gets. I keep calling them Boots, but Cash. Everything gets better for Cash for most of the film. Uh, so it, it doesn't have that same kind of. Um, I think I think narrative. a couple of good things happen from making the horses into like the new slaves or the new niggers, and I feel like what happens from that is that you get to see, um, what it's like. Like for example, when you know they used to say like the Irish and the Italians or whatever at one point weren't white, but uh, once black people came they could eventually get promoted into whiteness because now there was a new person to just dump all your psychosexual um, uh, mental toxic waste onto and project all this fucked up shit on. And I've, I've, I think by making, I feel like the horses kind of allow you as a black person, I mean, you in a general sense, um, like you as a black person kind of, picture for like a split second what it must have been like to be on the other side of the divide like you know like now you have someone else that you can finally like um niggerize or be epithetic. I, can, I, I think there I, I isn't there like a commentary where they talk about like how the horses are taking their jobs and so yeah, i feel like that's yeah. i feel like that's in the film somewhere where like people are like these people are being turned in the horses against their will but yeah these horses have jobs and they're taking them from us um so, so something i thought was pretty interesting too was i liked how because you had to be turned into a nigga like at one point you were a human you were an african or you were whatever but Later on, you become black. Like, like you're not black in Africa because to be black, there has to be white around or something to contrast it. You're just an African. But once you're in like a system of white supremacy, now you become black. You become, and in a system of white supremacy, black is a, is a nigger. And I thought it was interesting how when Cash, even as he's freeing them, he's talking to the horse like it's slow. And the horse has to remind them like yeah. from Oakland. Like you know, like yeah. like, and it reminds me of abolitionists. How they like, abolitionists, even though even the ones who want to free black people, would still kind of infantilize them and still view them as subhuman. Just they just wanted to um, free the animals as opposed to work them to death. But they still kind of saw them as animals. They couldn't mentally conceive them, convert them back into 
humans just like them. And I thought that was a very uh, good scene when Cash had to be reminded, like, yeah, this person was once human. Like, you know, kind of like how yeah. abolitionists couldn't kind of grasp it either. All right. So, so Bree, what do you think? What does this film bring to the class, race, uh, discussion and battle that is seemingly ongoing? And, like, why do so many people not... Like, is that part of why the film didn't get picked up as like you know the next woke film why it skipped from was it what did it skipped from it was like black panther then it skipped sorry to bother you and then it immediately just went on black clansmen and um crazy rich rich asians like why like why did why did it sorry to bother you get skipped over in the woke olympics and it, was it because it had a this explicit critique of capitalism in it well, first, I do want to challenge the notion that it's been skipped because I did feel a lot of um, positive reception of the movie, and not all. No, no movie is ever going to be Black Panther. Black Panther set all kinds of records, so I don't know that that's a fair standard. Um, I, I and I don't know that I've personally observed Black Klansmen getting more accolades than Sorry to Bother You did. That's this is all very subjective. Well, and not since not since Boots lit up. I would say. Yeah, I felt like Black Klansman was getting up there and then Boots, you know, uh, put his thumb on that. And that became a big article. And then people were like, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe, but that says a lot about the influence of Boots Riley and Black uh, and uh, Sorry to Bother You. And that's that's a good thing. But I will I, I, I will say that I do think that normal working people get it, enjoy the movie, and that's never the problem. The problem is never regular black people. It's never regular working people. It's that I think that it is true that there are gatekeepers at the top who are writing for Slate and Rolling Stone or what have you, um, who are setting the tone um, for, for the root. <laughs> I won't name names. Who, <laughs> who end up setting the tone for how quote unquote black people are supposed to think about these things and how hype we're supposed to be. And that's why it was so important for me to write a review that highlighted the fact that this movie was good because socialism. Uh, well, Boots Riley would say because communism. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't like when people call him socialist. He's like, no, I'm a communist. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it was, it's, to me, the movie is, is put the message out there, regardless of whether or not the elite interlocutors of um, the public space decide to push it the way they've done other films. Um, but I think that is the problem. It's the fact that this author, this writer that we're talking about, this Twitter spat with, whom you have not named, but I will, because uh, I don't see why not. Uh, it's a very public dispute. Um, <laughs> if I've been a, someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is so articulate and knowledgeable when it comes to her, her main area of expertise is housing, uh, sorry, school se- segregation, um, and who I think has a genuine investment in uh, outcomes for black kids, you know, I, I, when someone like, you know, I think the problem is that there are a lot of gatekeepers like her who are very hostile to the idea that um, class matters too. It doesn't matter more. It just matters too. That's all we're asking for, <laughs> for it to be considered alongside race. And I think the beauty of Sorry to Bother You, and frankly why it kind of had to be a black movie, was that if it weren't a black movie, if it did have Seth Rogen in it, we'd be seeing articles about how the bros were trying to push socialism on all of yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's, that's the beauty of, of people like Andrew Gillum running for governor in uh, Florida and people like Benjamin Jealous. Uh, you, when you have these black socialist progressive 
figures, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it becomes impossible for the people like uh, Hannah Nicole Jones to extricate the idea of racial solidarity from class solidarity without condemning these people who are people of color. And we all know people of color are great and sainted and you can't <laughs> like, <laughs> like in the political sphere, like they, you get a certain amount of um, insulation from the left, not from the right. Obviously you're still very vulnerable, more vulnerable even, but from the, from the left. So, you know, that's, I think that the, the, the goal here with the lesson to learn is that it's never going to be an easy road, but those of us who have any kinds of platforms and can start to try to explain these concepts and get past that barrier of these elite gatekeepers of these institutions, it's incumbent on us to do so. Because otherwise, you know this, Leslie, they're going to say you're white. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, which, which happened to you, which was amazing. We happened to me today, even though my avatar is now a picture of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm black. I'm like, I'm, I, I, I was looking, I was going to say I was, you know, like a seven on the Bokeem Woodbine <laughs> scale, but I actually looked and did the measurements Omar Epps is actually darker than Bokeem Woodbine. Even though I feel like Bokeem gets more dark-skinned roles, <laughs> Omar Epps is actually darker is actually a little bit darker than him. So I'm like I'm like an eight on the Omar Epps scale of darkness, but I still get a called white but what what have you i i do want to issue one correction mm-hmm. um i i i dismanded mandy ray i did say that he didn't um do any sorry to bother you cosplay but he did see it and he said this which is a very deray way of saying it okay oh boy i saw sorry to bother you today it offers the best critique of society that i've seen on film in a while it was excellent See, even he doesn't have a language. I don't even know if that's like, ill-intended. He doesn't have the language. He doesn't know how no, to say no. critique but, but of I'm society. Not sure, I'm not sure what he has a language for, to be honest. Like, yeah, we, 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 we really dived into his book on the Champagne Sharks episode where everybody should check out. And we come to the conclusion that the Ray has the um has kind of like the memory of a goldfish and so every new thing he sees is just either great or terrible and he doesn't really he can't really describe anything in any kind of depth and of course the best thing he come up with is that like yeah uh this critique society and it was good like and that's all he can <laughs> say about the film but we found we've came to the conclusion that he was not malicious it's the people who propped up d-ray that are actually the problem yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm a jury still out on him. With all of these people, even all the gatekeepers that I'm criticizing right now, there's a part of me that just, I think that they have really just bought into the, the narrative. And they yeah, don't, they think they're going to become power callers. They think they're going to become the well, power callers. Not, call, not even that. Like, I, I, I really do want to be charitable because I don't think, as much as I find her to be personally extraordinarily aggravating, like, I don't actually think that Nicole Hannah Jones means bad things to happen. I, I think she, she 99% of what she does is in the best interest of black people. I think that her work is really important. I could maintain that throughout my personal frustration with how she interacts with me. But I, 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 I think that she is so defensive for good reason, because there has been a history of people who have tried to marginalize the interest of black people and other people of color and other marginalized groups. Un, because, you know, by using class as a cudgel. That has happened. I think there's a legitimate defensiveness there, and I, I really want to credit that. 
But that being said, if I'm explicitly acknowledging that history, saying that that's not what I aspire to do, and that I want race and class to be uh, employed and pursued equally, and you still don't hear what I'm saying, at a certain point, I have to start judging you and not just say, oh, you're just a product of your environment. Yeah, and, and because it, but the thing is, like when they're talking about like uh, class, like all the examples they come up with are like from like fifty years ago of when class screwed over race in the great debate between uh, class and race, right? Like there's always examples like oh unions didn't integrate, um, the um, the New Deal didn't take care of black people, like. Right. Like, that was, you know, a long time ago. Like, I don't know what that has to do with people now talking, trying to talk about race and class in an intersectional way. Like, when you bring that stuff up, I, I really don't think it's just in, uh, really honest. Like, I don't think she, I don't think these people remember when this happened. This is something they read years later, yeah. probably in the context of finding out a reason to tamp down class like i don't think they know this stuff because i think they know this stuff specifically to attack people who are talking about class i don't think they like they don't remember this like they like this isn't something that happened to them this is something that they read in the book as an argument against you know class class-based analysis i i really don't think it's an honest critique at this point like it, and we see like every time bernie sanders says something like they'll try to take it out of context and say see he doesn't care about black people like it happens so often like i don't really take it take it as honest and like i don't feel like as a black person who is also you know doesn't have any money and in debt like i can't afford to like think these people mean well i i i just yeah, can't like i, I like you. these i like i i just can't i can't i can't like you know see her as like uh, uh well not necessarily her but like generally people who are constantly muddying the water every time you talk about class with saying is you you're talking about class you're not talking about race or saying you don't want to handle both you know effectively like i need both yeah, like, yeah. My thing, my thing with the New Deal stuff, I actually don't have a problem with them bringing it up. I think it's not a bad thing to bring up, but I just think the way they kind of bring it up is kind of like, like for example, like they'll bring up how the New Deal programs with all these different kind of um, white union stuff were kind of practice, practicing uh, socialistic things, but still using racism to kind of box black people. Um, out of those things, which is not a bad thing to bring up, but for me the problem is they kind of act like it has to be that way. Like it's like okay, just yes. note yes. it, just note it, and don't do it that way in the future. Yes. Just large yeah, from- it's that fatalistic Tadnisi code to racial determinism. Oh, and the great word, uh, Brie, fatalistic. Because when I talked to this writer and I asked her, like, you know, do you th- really think we can end racism without ending capitalism? Her Finally, she responded with, I don't think we can end racism. Like, if you if you don't think we can end racism, then how come every time we speak of ending capitalism, you bring it up? Like, like, what, what's the point? Like, every, like if you if you're saying there is no solution to racism, then why do you always you know denigrate any talk of socialism with you know saying that it's not going to be 
good on racism. Like, you don't believe we can solve this problem. You know it's always going to be there. The only thing you should be saying is, hey, you're doing the socialism thing. Make sure to remember race. You shouldn't say, hey, you're doing the socialism thing, but actually you should be uh, focusing on racism. I, I, I like that. That. Like, I feel like if you really pin down all these people, like almost all of them will say you can't end racism. So like what, like why, like bring it up in these ways every time we're trying to talk about class solidarity? Yeah, I think I I agree 100 percent. I feel like I have to plug my most recent piece, Beware the Race Reductionist and the Intercept, which basically tackles this entire concept and does a deep dive survey of all of the worst examples of people making these arguments on Twitter. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the person we're talking about, was about to feature heavily in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I reached out to her because in good faith, I wanted her to be able to contextualize her views, especially because I don't think that she believes a lot of the things that it comes off. she comes off as saying on Twitter. Um, and she was very hostile to me. Um, and so I ended up just taking it out of the article because I, I didn't feel like having to deal with her um, re- response on Twitter over the next few days. Wait, wait, wait. So so you mentioned her in the article. I did it. Then... I decided not to. I took her. Oh. She, she has some examples of like, she's, she's like a, a very, very common uh, ex- person who does this frequently on the internet. Um, but I opted to, I had a su- surplus of examples and I opted just to exclude hers because it wasn't worth the trouble. Uh, but in this, in this article, I take on exactly this, this idea that ending racism is a, is a, um, specter that people, um, float out there in order to detract from more tangible goals. Um, and I, I describe it as a hostage situation. I say a hostage situation has emerged on the left and progressive policies like Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, free public education and a green new deal, even net neutrality are captives. And the captors are bad faith claims of bigotry. And we all have heard this narrative again and again and again, that as Hillary Clinton said, will breaking up the banks cure racism? If it doesn't cure racism, people don't want to do it. And at the same time, they say racism can never be cured. And what kind of bind is that in? Whose interests is that that serving? And I speak to Torrey Reid in this article, and he is much less charitable than I am. And he basically says explicitly, like, this is the black elites um, gatekeeping and doing what is in their best personal interest. Because black elites, their biggest concerns are these more kind of um, superficial things that only relate to race and not class. Not that they're superficial. That's not a, a good word. But like, if you're, if you're a wealthy black person, of course they're going to pre- be preoccupied with those issues that re- relate exclusively to race yes. and say that class doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's a blatant, obvious self-interest grab for one's own self-interest. And yet these people get away with it because the only ones who are available to judge them are white liberals who have even less traction, you know, and who are going to defer to the Nicole Hannah Jones of the world. And so it's incumbent on us black leftists <laughs> to, and, and other leftists of color, the squeezes of the world as well. The squeezes of the world. <laughs> to push it's back. The- is the Detroit Squeeze Alliance that has to push back and say that the only solution is, you know, demolishing capitalism, of course, and solidarity, so- solidarity across um, racial lines. I, I really, um, uh, want, uh, I think we've talked a lot about this film. I think we've covered all the aspects. I definitely, uh, it's co- it, they just announced that it's coming out on uh, DVD and VOD in October, so very, very soon. Oh, I, I feel was- kind of sad about that because I feel that means that I guess I was still kind of hoping it would make some kind of last-minute search at the box office, but I guess if it's going to 
video now i guess it's that's done I, yeah i mean i feel like it was about to pop and it just didn't happen you know the buzz was sounding so good i thought it was going to word of mouth you know kind of like how moonlight was very limited release and then the word of mouth kind of uh helped it explode by the time it went to wide release but i mean i, I hope it at well. least becomes a, a cult hopefully, hopefully it become a cult, a cult movie or a something yeah. in on dvd i want to bring up one that are we done i want you to bring up like one last thing okay what did you think this could be a really weird question what do you think about the horses and the horse dicks well, what was, you, what was going on there what did he say no no, no well, well my okay well, well tell me what he what he said because I felt like they were prominent, like for a reason, and I yeah. Found it and so the reason is Boots has an effed up thing about horse dicks. Really? <laughs> yes. Let me tell you. So you should you should insert him actually talking about this uh, into the podcast if you can. But he was interviewed and kind of brought up when nobody asked him this thing where he's like, "Yeah, I've had all these girlfriends who really love horses, and you can't tell me that their love of horses isn't about really wanting that horse dick, basically." <laughs> And it was this crazy tangent about how not enough. It was like it was like, and then he was like on like or Democracy Now or something with like a really like serious like white host. <laughs> he was like, no, 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 no. Like I, I really do think there's this thing with women and horses that's really sexual and yada yada yada. So I think that he was projecting some weird. I don't know feelings of insecurity thinking, or what oh, about oh, horse dicks. Yeah. I was thinking I, I, the horse dicks was supposed to be like the sexualization of like uh, black men. I thought it was kind of like yeah. this titillation, this kind of thing that happens. You know, kind of like how these people are subhuman, but also there's something about the um, legend of the black phallus that I thought that was meant to be prominent for uh, that reason. And uh, but apparently boots just like horse dicks. This does get... To think, I think we talk about it on our podcast all the time. Um, every single director is some sort of weirdo, creep, or pervert. Every single one. Boots could not escape it. Um, he put the horse, big ass horse sticks in the film. They feature pretty prominently. Uh, Army Hammer actually says to Cash when he's trying to convince him to become a horse, like, "Oh man, you're going to have a big horse cock," and that that's supposed to be like a benefit of. Uh, Becoming a horse. Well, it's uh, it's clear that we must have class solidarity with the horses now. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, thank you so much uh, for coming out. Any uh, last things you want to plug, talk about? I, I do want to plug always my podcast, Swoti, S-W-O-T-I. It stands for Someone's Wrong on the Internet, but you should search for it by Swoti. And also Current Affairs, the magazine where I'm a contributing editor. I think it's the best uh, independent leftist magazine that's out there it's beautiful in print if you haven't seen it in print it's got comedy pictures art it's it's like so funny and great cartoons beautifully beautifully produced um and we have a new podcast the current affairs podcast you can also find that everywhere that you can find podcasts and it's doing incredibly well we already have like 900 patrons and um it's because all it's right really hold good. up hold, you already have nine i don't appreciate that <laughs> like as on struggle session we're very competitive <laughs> um we're we're at 850 right now i'm gonna need 50 of your current affairs uh people to come on over i'm not asking struggle. your patrons to be our patrons i'm just saying they should listen to the podcast okay all right <laughs> But I mean, I think it's, I think when it's called struggle session, you kind of have to give the people what they want, which is like struggle a little bit. You can't just blow up too much because then 
It's gonna be like balling out session or something. You can't. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we're we're trying not. To, we tr- we're trying. We, uh, we have been very clear. We do want to be power callers, but as long <laughs> as we, we will, we will sell out immediately for the right amount of money. But we're doing it for you. We're doing it because we love you and we care about you, and we want to do this full time. Uh, and thank. And this. And this is actually going to be a bonus episode. So thank all the patrons who uh, listen. And uh, and I actually sent out a message to all our former patrons to see if they want still wanted to get the episodes without paying for it. Um, if they ca- couldn't afford it, or if they you know could afford it but maybe wanted to sign back up so i want to thank some of the people who signed back up and also thank some of the people who reached out and said yeah i couldn't afford it but um i would love to listen because we really Hello? appreciate uh you too we don't want anybody to be uh not be able to hear it because they because they've been grinding down by capitalism oh, wow, and, and yeah and and t oh yeah i mean just check out champagne sharks um you know google it you can go to champagnesharks.com i got the domain so yeah it's pretty easy pretty easy to find what does, it, what does champagne shark mean I, I never knew uh know what the name i never knew what the um, name the idea was well there was two things i wanted something that was kind of like nonsensical that would stay in your head and that when you google it it would be the only thing that um pops up perfect right and then the other thing is i wanted something that was both kind of a uh, high brown like uh and polite but also kind of like can get low brow and kind of like have a very sharp or vicious uh wit to it or the take so the perfect. juxtaposition of champagne and sharks i thought was nice perfect um so what happens when you name your podcast struggle session is that every time um you try to do a twitter search to see if ta- people are talking about your podcast you get nothing but a bunch of right wingers um, talking in fear about how the struggle Mao, they, they always use the phrase uh, Chinese Maoist struggle sessions are now coming to America. Like it's the new Sharia law. If we had started this podcast in like 2009 and named it Sharia law, that's the kind of uh, thing we got from the name struggle sessions. So, we know it's good. <laughs> yeah, I wanted something that when you Google it, it's the only thing that would come up. And it turns out, I guess there's a town called Champagne or something. There's a, a team called the Sharks. So there was <laughs> there is a team called the Champagne Sharks. Like the uh so I still ended up finding something else that actually I thought like Champagne Sharks, no way these two will go together. <laughs> but there's a Sharks team in a city called Champagne. So uh but still ninety percent of the results are still our podcast. 90%. All right. Well, thank you both so much uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. And everyone have a good night. Peace.
wanna thank you for flying with us. We know you could've stayed home, just cried and cussed. May all your guns go off if it's time to bust. May all the tanks have time to rust. They got the armies turning bullets into gold. They got the hookers turning tricks into coal. And every time the police kicks in the dough, an angel gas breaks dips in the O. And even if a D-boy flips in my O, it ain't enough to buy shit anymore. Sleep in the doorway, piss on the floor. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.